0: I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, And empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, stick with it moments from season four. We've spent the last several months here on Top of Mind assessing the assumptions that drive our decisions. And along the way, I hope you've had more than a few stick with it moments where you've heard a perspective that challenged you, but you chose to keep listening, to stay open and curious to stick with the discomfort long enough to be glad that you did, because maybe you felt some new empathy or gained some new clarity. I'd love to hear about it. You can email topofmind at byu.edu. And hopefully those experiences have been good practice for sticking with it when you encounter challenging perspectives in your daily life, because that is how we become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates, which as you know, is our goal on the podcast. So today, the Top of Mind team is reflecting on stick-with-it moments that we had while working on season four.
1: Hello, my name is Samuel Benson, and I've been uh, producing on the Top of Mind team for about a year now.
0: It's great to have you, Samuel. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. So what episode during the season brought you a stick-with-it moment?
1: Yeah, so... My stick with it moment was from actually the the very first episode of the season, a season four, um which was about this, you know, whether living longer is can conflict with dying well, sort of this idea about extending life um, at any cost. So
0: yeah, so this one grappled a lot with end of life decisions and what it means to die well. Um, what caused you to feel uncomfortable uh, to that kind of forced this stick with it moment for you?
1: Yeah. so, I mean, in often when we talk about these stick with it moments, it's often like an idea that maybe we like disagreed with or brought us some discomfort. But in this case, i I didn't, you know, disagree with anything The guests were saying what was hard for me and what brought this discomfort was the general concept of of death, oh. right. Um I have always, since I was very, very young, grappled with this pretty intense fear, uh, like of, of death and of life ending. Uh, and so when I, when I saw that this was sort of one of the ideas we wanted to work on and the conversation came up, um, I was, it was hard. I was hesitant because I was, I knew that that would, I'd have to prepare myself and set myself up for a lot of dealing with a lot of thoughts that are hard for me to grapple with and with a lot of feelings that make me, you know, for lack of better words, scared and and afraid and uncomfortable. So,
0: yeah. Which is, you know, of course, understandable. A a lot of us are uncomfortable with the, in fact, that was one of the kind of key themes (laughs) of the the episode (laughs) was like, if we could get more comfortable with thinking about, anticipating, planning, discussing, whatever, um, uh, what we want our deaths to be like that—that that we might actually be able to have better deaths, yeah, for course. lack of a better way to say it. But um, so, so I appreciate you sharing that. And course, and yeah. um, and I guess as you were mentioning, in this case, then your your a stick with it moment always in, includes sort of a gut re- reaction to like bail out or get defensive. And in this case, it sounds like it was to sort of shut it off, like to say. I mean, unfortunately for you, you're a producer, you're in the room, like you <laughs> right, couldn't just bail yeah. out, but you could certainly have disengaged from those conversations or sort of tried to put a wall up and not think not think deeply about them.
1: Yeah, d- definitely. Um, and, and you are right. Like, obviously, it's part of my job to be in the room. So it's not like I could just choose like I've done throughout my life when these types of conversations start to happen or come up naturally where I would often just... Make an excuse and excuse myself and leave the room or (laughs) whatever. Yeah. Um, But since that wasn't the case, yeah, there wasn't, you know, maybe this feeling inside of me of being like, okay, well, then I can't physically leave. So maybe I will mentally leave, so to speak, or, you know, dissociate or disengage from this just so I don't have to think deeply about it or I don't have to to face these feelings or cause myself to have them in the first place um, because I. I don't know what will, what will happen if I if I do do that, you know.
0: So. so what was what was the decision that you made instead?
1: What what happened for me was hearing I think in the episode um there's clips from from David Oliver, right? And of these videos he made as he was coming towards the end of his life and the decisions they were making
0: mm-hmm. and around his cancer uh, his treatment His cancer treatment.
2: And- yeah. Hello, I'm David Oliver and This is video number 12 in our series about my cancer journey. This this one we're calling "cancer: my exit strategy." I've developed an acronym for it. Uh, It spells "Hope." So it's pretty easy to remember. Uh, The H stands for home. I want to die at home. The O stands for uh, others. I want to be surrounded by others, family and friends, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, anybody can walk in. P is for pain. Actually, pain management. I do not want to suffer. And in this day and age, I don't think you should have to suffer with cancer. And the E stands for excitement. I still wanna be excited about living. Um, I hope people want to come visit and they, they will come into a house uh, full of, uh, you know, fun and um, not depression. Hearing him sort of speak with
1: such, I don't know, like this, like such hope and such like optimism because he had taken control, even though like, you know, there was a lack of control in terms of he couldn't, he didn't choose to have cancer, obviously, and couldn't make those choices. Mm -hmm. But he was able to take control of the things that mattered the most to him, which was to, you know, make sure he was surrounded by family, to make sure that he lived the most life he could it it really changed my perspective about if we can think about death more and the 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 idea of thinking about life Mm. first right because if we spend all of our time you know and he could have spent all of his time just wallowing and being being depressed that oh this is you know i only have this much time left he he chose to change his perception of it um about, okay, well, then how much life can I live still? You know, I'm not going to waste that. And uh, that was helpful for me to know that, oh, okay, I, I don't have to, if I spend all of my life, I spend all my time disengaging from these from death and not thinking about it, you know, will I, will I, when it happens to everyone, like we say in the episode, mm-hmm. it's inevitable. If I, you know, I don't want to get to that point having spent all of my life ignoring it and then not being prepared and not being in a place where I can, you know, if I end up in a situation like David Oliver did, where I'm like, now suddenly I have to confront this and I've spent my whole life trying to run away from it. That's going to make it, you know, that much worse if I don't change my mindset.
0: Yeah. So, uh, thanks for sharing that, yeah. Samuel. I, I, um, a couple of things stand out to me. So we think about a stick with it experience as sort of feeling an instinct to back away, yeah. to shut it down, making the choice instead to stay open and curious or humble or whatever the case may be, um, which was in your case being willing to listen yeah. and be in the room and not disengage from from the conversations that we were having as a team, as well as the conversations that ultimately played out in the course of the episode, of course, yeah. which I can imagine there were there are a lot of people who would see an episode titled, you know, When Living Longer Conflicts with Dying Well, and they're like, oh, good, da- I, no thank you, I don't, yeah. I'm not in a place right now to be thinking no about you, death, please. and of course, that's an individual choice for a lot of us, but that was one of the things that I certainly came away from that episode as well, realizing, you know, I... It, the more comfortable I can be thinking about discussing, planning for death the 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 better I can live and make sure that my life is is you know, yeah, that I maximize my opportunity to live. So it's interesting that that for you, the payoff and oftentimes with stick with it, you know, the staying open and the curious leads either to some sort of like aha moment or maybe just a oh, I never thought of it that way, shifting the lens to where. It wasn't actually an episode about death for you. It was an episode about living.
1: Yeah. Um and and honestly, I, I've I think I've been able to have since then have more conversations about it and be more open. And it, it just so happened that as the at the time we were developing this episode, that my my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, ended up going into hospice care and mm. we weren't sure how much time he had left. And so these types of conversations became a lot more common in among my family and people like that. And I was grateful that I had had sort of this, this moment to prepare myself that I had gotten to a better place. Cause it, you know, it would have been really hard to th- disengage from those. And I've, even though I'm pretty young, so I'm not, I'm hopefully not worrying about the end of my life at this point too much. Um, you know, my wife and I have been able to have conversations just you know, in passing about how would we would want to approach a situation like that. And it's brought me some peace because I think fear often just comes from, and anxiety can come from feeling a lack of control or a lack of knowing what's coming. And I've, I've been able to take a little bit more, take a little bit of that back, what I can in my life. So Yeah.
0: Thanks for sharing, Samuel. I appreciate it. Yeah, of it. course.
3: I'm Elena Beck, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and I've been at Top of Mind for about five months. What drew you to the job? Um, I really love the variety of subjects that we address and how expansive the world has become to me as I've been interacting with
0: new people all the time. So what was your Stick With It experience in this last season?
3: My stick with it moment came as I was working on the Fines episode, episode 10 of this season, and simultaneously the immigration episode. The Fines episode was looking at how we motivate people through money and how fines can act as incentives, but also looking at the unintended consequences when we motivate people with money and how that isn't always as effective as we think it is. The immigration episode was looking at immigration through a new lens, not just about permanency and the American identity of who needs to be here or should be here, but about the American labor shortage and how we can or shouldn't maybe help our labor shortage with temporary visa workers. So what
0: um What what was challenging for you?
3: Yes. So I was working on them kind of simultaneously. I was looking at Yuri Genesi's studies and what he had to say about fines and incentives. And I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was cool for sure. um, But I didn't really see how it fit in with the rest of the episode and why we were including it when we are like talking about Lisa Foster's work and like that seemed... They did not seem comparable or to match for me, but it wasn't like... A big deal. Yeah. It just didn't make sense.
0: Okay, so this is an episode listeners might recall where we talk extensively about fines in the criminal justice system and how those can have um, harmful effects in a lot of cases or unintended consequences. Um, but then we do end the episode with a conversation with a behavioral economist who's sort of trying to unpick for us the ways in which fines mm-hmm. can uh, backfire sometimes and actually encourage yes. the behavior you're trying to mm-hmm. deter. So so it seemed to you, you were kind of like, I don't know what this guy has much to do with anything. It yeah. didn't feel very engaging to you. Exactly. He was okay. just talking about daycares, like his child's daycare, and
3: also just school districts fining parents for pulling their
0: kids out of school early. I was okay. like, okay, that's fine. But okay. <laughs> so if a stick with it experience is one where at a certain point you want to, you know, disengage mm-hmm. because you feel like it's either irrelevant to you was your feeling in this case. It wasn't necessarily yeah. like it was making a- you angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, it was just fine. It was there. But this connects then for you to the next episode yes. in the season, which was about immigration and the job market. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
3: So I was at the same time also working on the immigration episode
0: and I was looking at Oren Cass and Oren Kass is, um, is an economic policy analyst with a conservative organization called American Compass. They're a conservative think tank. Um, and, and so was there a specific part of his position that, that, that was challenging for you? Yes. Um, so
3: when he was talking about wanting to do away with all temporary
0: visa worker programs. That seemed extreme to me. So here's that exchange then from the interview as well as the episode where Oren Cass explains his position on that. With a secure border, would you like to also see America, see fewer immigrants overall coming into the United States legally? So,
1: so if we could actually enforce our immigration laws effectively, I think a very important thing to then do is to phase down and ultimately out these temporary worker programs.
0: To have them completely go away.
1: Correct. I don't think there's there's any economic rationale for having the kinds of temporary visa programs, either for low-skilled or high-skilled workers, that we have today.
0: Okay, Elena, so this triggered a, a stick-with-it moment for you. What was your reaction? What was your inclination in hearing his position on guest worker programs?
3: Yeah, there was a lot of resistance. I felt myself pulling away all the feelings that we've all experienced before when we hear something we don't like or we directly disagree with. Um, I definitely identified more with what Rebecca Smith and Lamp Pritchett were saying in the episode. I didn't understand how you could think there was a reason to deny people the opportunity to come work in America when it would be so beneficial to them and they didn't have that opportunity where they were born, which is not something that they can control. And then there was a moment when I was talking with a friend, and she was just casually asking me about work and what I was working on. And so I was talking about these two episodes that I was working on, Fines and Immigration. Um, And as I was talking about it, just explaining the ideas and concepts and the perspectives we were trying to present, they started connecting in my mind, and I started seeing them differently. So... Uh, Yuri Ganesi talks about incentives and how we try to incentivize people through fines, but it often backfires and creates the motivation for people to do the opposite of what the incentive is trying to do. And then Oren Kass was also talking about the same thing, I realized, that when we are giving businesses in America the opportunity to get Cheap labor so easily through through temporary visa workers that we are incentivizing them to not become efficient, to not want to make progress, and do more with what they already have. Right,
0: and so which I re- was his core argument that what mm-hmm. we really need is more productivity in America. Yes. It's what we ex- it's why we have a free market system, and so why would we want to undercut that incentive? <laughs> by allowing access to unlimited temporary guest work. Exactly. Um, Yeah, interesting. So those two things all of a sudden connected Mm -hmm. along the lines of incentives for you. Yeah,
3: I was like, oh, Oren Cass, while he's talking about immigration, it's not necessarily immigration, it's more about incentives and how as an economist, he was worried about the incentives we were giving businesses in America. And as these ideas connected in my mind and as I was just like speaking out loud with my friend, I realized that I could understand Oren Cass better. Hmm. And while my perspective didn't immediately change to match his or I could totally see and agree with him now, I did understand him better. And I was glad that I had the opportunity to carry through and stick with it um, and to see his perspective better.
0: Yeah. So for you, what was the payoff there? I feel like I now
3: have this experience in my pocket that I can apply to other situations. I can, when I have a situation where I'm directly disagreeing with somebody, I can think around Cass and Mm -hmm. be like, you know, you are not always right and you do not always know everything of this perspective and you can't understand them completely until you hear
0: them entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's. thank you for sharing that, Elena. That's really cool. It's also kind of, um, I'm thinking about this idea that you, in order to um, feel like you were able to engage more sincerely, I guess, with the ideas that Oren Cass was putting forward, um, you had to look at it from a different perspective, look mm-hmm. at it not just as a like, we want to keep immigrants out it wasn't an immigr- it wasn't a question of who deserves to be here and whether or not it's good for them he had he was taking a very specific lens that has to do with America's economy and what's good for America. And as we point out in the episode, there are lots of different lenses we could look at this through. (laughs) But if we insist upon looking at it only through one lens, then we're missing a lot of other possibilities that might lead us to a place where we can make more informed decision. And so it was a like for you, it was a switch of realizing like, oh, well, I'm looking at it from this side and he's looking at it from this side. And I can actually I can see how it's rational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Without
3: having both of those episodes happening at the same time, I don't think I would have been able
0: to see his perspective as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Elena, thank you so much for your work on both of those episodes and also for sharing this story with us. It's (laughs) the kind of thing that I really hope listeners experience as well. Yes, of course. I'm happy to be here. Did that episode on immigration and the labor market present you with any stick with it moments? If so, let us know. Our email is topofmind at byu.edu. We love to hear how the conversations we're having on the podcast strike you. Like this review that we got on Apple Podcasts recently from Sharon in M.O. The listener says, I absolutely love Top of Mind. It is helping me to expand my mind and thought process by considering many ways to look at one issue. Well, if you are inclined to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would love to read it. It also helps the algorithm recommend Top of Mind to new listeners who are also looking to expand their minds and consider new ways of seeing things. Let's get back now to the stick with it stories that our team is sharing as we look back on season four. My name is Vanessa Goodman. I'm from Springville, Utah, and I've been working
4: at Top of Mind for over a year now. What brought you a stick-with-it moment this season, Vanessa? It was during my time working on episode two about adoption. Working on this episode was personal to me from the beginning because my dad was adopted from Guatemala when he was a baby. And so it's always been something I've known about, something I've been aware of, something part of my family. It's always like a super celebratory story that we tell in our family of how he came to be with my grandparents and his siblings. And kind of just the happy ending of, the, of his adoption story. So I've always thought of it as a super positive thing. You know, if he hadn't been adopted, then he wouldn't have been able to meet my mom and I wouldn't have been born. So it's an essential part of who I am.
0: And so the root then of your discomfort was the notion that we would need to look for and that you as a producer on this episode would need to go out looking for perspectives that, that might challenge that story yeah. in some way. Or complicate the narrative. Yeah. And even when I first
4: started working on it, I told my dad, I was like, hey, I'm working on research for an adoption episode we might do. And he's like, oh, are you going to find a bunch of people who hate adoption or wish they were never adopted? Like, I don't want to hear that. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I wasn't really interested in looking for those things either, but I knew part of the job kind of had to.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, and of course, we go out and we look for lots of things, but we're not looking only for one specific thing. Yeah. Um. But it was part of the job, like you mentioned. And so did you have a light bulb moment?
4: Yeah. So at first, when I was looking for differing perspectives, I ran into a bunch of super negative things like we should outlaw adoption. It should not be a thing that happens at all or just horror stories of people that were had terrible adoptions and they wish they'd never been adopted. And so that was hard for me because I was like, I don't want to listen to those kind of things. I don't want to seem like I'm encouraging this kind of idea by presenting even as an option. But I knew that to do right by the story, I had to dig a little bit into the complexities of it. When I started to find perspectives more in the middle of maybe adoption's good, but we can't ignore that it is hard or the trauma that comes with adoption sometimes, or, well, all the time, actually, uh, as we discovered through the episode. I feel like that was when I started to become a lot more Imp- enjoyable to me, I guess. Mm. It became a lot more enjoyable to me.
0: Right. So because- you had the, oh, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective kind of a moment, which yeah. often happens with we'll Stick With It. I mean, there was the key point here of deciding that you were going to stay open, um, even though it was very uncomfortable to you, <laughs> yeah. to, to sort of be open to those possible perspectives. And in the process, discover that there were really complex perspectives that weren't necessarily all yes or all no, but what was it about some of those perspectives, or was there a particular perspective that we, that you heard as we were doing the interviews for this episode that that really started to kind of make you glad that you had stayed open?
4: I think it was less of a discovery of these different perspectives, more of a realization and putting a name to things that I'd actually seen my whole life. I'd seen my whole life the com- complexities and challenges of adoption, but I just hadn't realized it. Mm. And so I think the story that first um, stood out to me a lot was Astrid Castro. Mm. And because Just because her story had so many parallels with my dad's experience because hers was about
0: international adoption as well. Born and, uh, in Colombia, yeah. adopted by a white couple in America as a child.
4: Yeah. yeah. So super similar to my dad's story because he was born in Guatemala, adopted by an American white couple. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that really stood out to me was when she started talking about the language— not being able to speak Spanish, even though she obviously looked like maybe she could speak Spanish just based on stereotypes or whatever. And and that was similar to what I've experienced in my life because, you know, I'm half Guatemalan, I'm half white, so I can pass for white super easily. Um, so a lot of, like, a lot of the times I never experienced people like, well, like my dad, people will walk up to him on the street and start speaking to him in Spanish. And he does speak Spanish, but he learned it later in life. It's not like it's his first language or anything. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really happen to me. But oftentimes with, like, people that knew my dad... Like, I remember one time I was on, with my dad on a work trip. And at the time, he was using a lot of Spanish in his job. He was working with a lot of people from Mexico um, in, as part of his job. And on that trip a bunch of people would come up to me as co-workers from Mexico, um, different clients from Mexico would come up to me and start speaking to me in Spanish. And I was 14 at the time, and I spoke no Spanish at all. Mm. And so I started feeling kind of embarrassed, like, I wish I knew Spanish, but I don't. Like, I know that's, like, what you expect me to to do, but Mm -hmm. I don't. And so then that was always kind of challenging for me because I was like, well, but am I really, like, Guatemalan if I don't speak Spanish? Um, but then when I was 19 I actually did learn Spanish and that was super helpful to me in understanding my personal identity and not that I think that's necessary necessary for everyone to do but it helped me connect to that part of myself and so I thought it was cool that she explained that as as one of the repercussions of adoption and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it is a little uncomfortable sometimes and I thought that that really opened up my eyes to, like, thinking more deeply about the adoption issue of, like, we need to be thinking deeply about these things because it really affects real people.
0: Yeah. Interesting that she put into words something that this must have been a kind of a cathartic moment or a real, like, oh, lean forward moment when she, when this is Kestro in Castro in the episode talking about the language and feeling disconnected from her culture because of her lack of ability to speak Spanish very well.
5: If it's somebody who looks like me, I instantly go into imposter syndrome. Uh, I instantly go to, "I'm sorry. I wish get like can
4: can you just hold on a second? I want to tell you my entire life story. I was adopted. It's not my fault. And I
0: do have, I do value where I come from. And I do, uh, you know, wish that I spoke Spanish and I would speak to you and speak <laughs> all of that. It sounds so much like what you were just describing. <laughs> yep, <laughs> having exactly. lived that
4: experience, um, I always have to give a little explanation of. When people ask me how I know Spanish, I'm like, well, my dad's Guatemalan, but he didn't learn Spanish later in life, and I didn't learn Spanish later in my life, so I'm not, like, a native speaker, but I do speak some Spanish. It's not perfect. Yeah, so. I do have this, you know, like, ethnic heritage. <laughs> I always have <laughs> to, it's always an explanation <laughs> right. so people can understand.
0: Right, right, right. And so what, um, you know, so I mean you were willing to kind of stay with the possibility that maybe it was more complex than you had been willing to admit, and and over the course of sort of listening and working on this episode and hearing these perspectives, um, it sounds like you had some, some of your own personal realizations. You came to more clarity about your own experience. Did anything else come of it for you? Or in what ways are you sort of in hindsight glad that you stuck with it?
4: Yeah, I just feel like in general, as I've kept going with this job, kept working on different episodes, it's helped me realize that my experience doesn't necessarily have to be the experience that everyone else has. You know, people have had negative experiences with with adoption. Um, People have super negative opinions towards it a lot of the time. And just because I don't feel that same way doesn't mean they're wrong, doesn't mean my experience is wrong or my, my family's experience is wrong. And so it's helped me as I've looked into other topics that are maybe personally applicable to my life, maybe not. I can see that, you know, it's not it's not about my experience necessarily. Not that my experience isn't valid, but it's about helping all perspectives be shown so that we can learn more about it and maybe in the process learn something about ourselves because I think it's so easy to get locked in our own ways of well this was my experience this is how it is Mm -hmm. but that's never going to help you progress and so I think when I'm able to look deeper and put aside maybe the emotion that I have connected with it and analyze things a little deeper while still honoring the experiences that I have I'm able to to see other perspectives in a more empathetic way and
0: learn a lot more than I could have maybe before Vanessa, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Of course. Thank you.
6: I'm Amber Mortensen. I'm from California. I've been working on Top of Mind for the last six months. My stick with it moment this season was on episode three on Traffic Stops.
0: What was the perspective that challenged you?
6: We had a guest on the podcast, uh, Officer Mark Ross, and we were asking him questions about the disproportionate nature of, uh, well, specifically getting pulled over
0: in. Why drivers of color are so much more likely to get pulled over.
6: Yeah, and his answer when I heard it just really ticked me off. Hmm. It felt like a justification of the experience that disenfranchised people tend to go through when it comes to police presence and police action.
0: Mm. He talked about how a major reason that more drivers of color get pulled over is because there's more of a police presence in neighborhoods of color, where m- more of the crime in the city is happening. And so, but 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 for you, it felt like he was uh, blaming people of color, yeah, for the crime in their communities.
6: Yes. The answer is I heard it. Was like in a quiet way, it felt to me like it was endorsing the violence that happens, the police violence that does happen in disenfranchised, low income neighborhoods. And I, my response was that I wanted it cut from the episode. Mm. <laughs> I come from the stance of if it ticks me off, it could very well hurt someone else.
0: Mm. Yeah. So you wanted it removed. You worried that it might upset or even hurt. Some, some listeners, yeah, um, but it didn't get removed. <laughs> no. And what happened as you continued to engage with this issue and, and chose to stay open and curious ab- about his perspective rather than completely dismiss it out of hand as the episode production continued?
6: Yeah, it was definitely an internal grapple for me because I don't want to hurt people's feelings but I'm also somewhat of a devil's advocate in my own mind. Mm. And so this felt like a situation where I was standing on the other side from the devil's advocate and shutting it down instead of listening. Um, and I pride myself on being a fairly neutral thinker and accepting a new information very quickly. And then suddenly for pretty much the first time in like forever, I was faced with something that I did not accept. And that ticks me off because when you're having an emotional response to something, you're not at your most logical. Hmm. And that had an impact on me. And so I remember sitting at my workstation thinking, why was this left in? And I realized it was because that was the answer to the question that we asked. If we start sanitizing other people's viewpoints, then we are just another cog in the he said, she said, okay, but what's the actual quote machine that happens in news a lot? And if we had sliced and diced that from the episode, then in a way, we are removing other people's ability to make a judgment on that. And that ticks me off when people do it to me. Hmm. I do not like people telling me what to think about someone, but not letting me make my own judgment. And so I had made my judgment, but I was trying to, and I didn't realize that I was doing it until I was looking at the final script. I was trying to make it, make a situation where everyone was going to think the way I thought. And that's not cool.
0: Hmm. So how are you different as a result in terms of, uh, you know, interacting with or thinking about perspectives that you disagree with?
6: It's been different since because I don't often find myself experiencing things like cognitive dissonance Mm. because I am very easy accepting with new information, but this was a big cognitive dissonance for me. And since then, because I've found the answer to it, which is people have a right to share their perspectives, and since I've come through the process of understanding feelings versus my logical side of that. I've been more aware of the fact that as logical as I think myself to be, emotions do absolutely come into play. And when I'm doing work and I hear something a guest says that I disagree with, or even when I just encounter my sister disagreeing with me, um... I am able to catch when emotions start overwhelming logic and understanding
0: hmm yeah emotions do have a way I mean that's the that's the essence of a stick with it right our gut reaction is all fueled by emotion it's either discomfort or disgust or fear and uh, it's really really hard to to sort of Press pause on those emotions and and choose something else. Choose to stay uncomfortable. Choose to stay open and curious.
6: It was an exercise of a number of different principles I've learned throughout my life, but taping them all together <laughs> and being able to look at what was frustrating me and why I had the just get rid of it childish reaction and looking deeper than that as an adult How can we have these conversations? And the answer is to take a chill pill on our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Amber, thank you
0: so much for sharing this with us today.
6: It's an absolute pleasure.
0: That actually reminds me of a stick with it moment that I had working on episode seven. This is the one about the English language. Linguist Valerie Friedland basically told all of us who get worked up over language pet peeves to take a chill pill because... What we don't like is who's doing it. That's really what bothers us. That really stung me. I had to acknowledge in that moment how judgmental I am about the way people talk and how often I do that judging with a sense of righteousness because there's a right way and a wrong way to speak English. And I'm on the right side, so I have the right to judge. And then to hear Valerie Friedland list some of the words and pronunciations I insist on as proper English that were actually... The exact opposite. They were considered bad English not even 100 years ago. Well, it was humbling to realize that what's proper is so changeable and so rooted in bias. Since working on that episode, I am much more aware of how quick I am to judge people as they speak and how hypocritical I am for doing that judging. When I'm over here dropping the L-Y on the end of words and saying like (laughs) so much more than I realize. So how about you? What is a perspective you've heard on Top of Mind that challenged you to think differently or just more deeply? Email topofmind at byu.edu. I'd love to hear it, and I promise not to judge your grammar. Okay, here's one last stick-with-it story from our team today.
5: I'm James Hoops. I'm from Minnesota, and I've been working for Top of Mind for about two years now.
0: It's great having you on the team. Which episode gave you a stick with it moment?
5: Yeah, so my stick with it moment actually came in a stick with it episode. I um, <laughs> love our, it. Our episode with Utah Governor Spencer Cox.
0: Okay, so what was it about the conversation with Governor Cox that um, that made you feel challenged?
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess my initial reaction was excitement because what a great get, right? But um, almost immediately after that, um, I felt really skeptical and on the verge of Wanting to be dismissive almost because um, there was some policy decisions he had made um, that had frustrated me in the past few years where he had signed off and approved some new congressional boundaries that um, many people have criticized for being gerrymandered. And so in my mind, I was like, what can this governor really teach me about sticking with it when from my perspective, it seemed like he had quashed political opposition a little bit. I, I was pretty skeptical and ready to be really dismissive of him.
0: Right, especially when you probably um you knew, knew that what one of the things we wanted to talk with the governor about was his Disagree Better initiative. As right. the new um, chair of the National Governors Association, he just made this big splash with this, like, we need to learn how to disagree better. And so I imagine there was just an, an additional level of, like, I mean, come on. Yeah. Kind of. I was like,
5: this probably looks great for you. But when it comes down to it, what I've seen is, I don't know. I don't know if you can really talk to this in a way that's going to be compelling to me.
0: Your instinct was to dismiss, maybe even like just not listen to, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to the episode.
5: <laughs> I mean, part of me wanted to listen just to be like, oh, I was totally right about like yeah. what Spencer Cox was bringing to the table and like just sort of validate myself and my initial feelings. So um, I still listened to it maybe going in with that head. In in that headspace with that frame of mind of being like, let's, let's validate my feelings of dismissing Spencer Cox. <laughs> yeah. But that's not actually what ended up happening while I was listening. When he started presenting about his um, initiative with the with the governors around the country, I was actually really, really compelled by what he was saying and super surprised to find myself being like, oh, that's super sensible. Like, I, I agree with everything he's saying, and I came in with this idea that everything he'd say was sort of going to be easy to dismiss, and I find myself agreeing with him on most of what he presented.
0: Yeah, well, let's listen to just a little bit. This is Utah Governor Spencer Cox in a conversation with us here on Top of Mind, a stick with it conversation during season four. And here he is talking about how he pitched his Disagree Better initiative to other governors, both Republicans and Democrats.
1: I actually had to convince them that it's not just about being nicer to each other, although that's certainly important. Uh, it's this is not just another civility initiative. There's actual science behind what we're doing. We've been working with uh, with researchers from from major universities: Stanford's Policy Lab, Duke, uh, Dartmouth, and and this is really about disagreeing and how important disagreement actually is civility is usually focused on let's just get along and and you know be be unified this is about disagreeing but disagreeing in the right way a healthy conflict versus the unhealthy conflict that we're seeing in our country that is tearing us apart
0: this is a clip from Utah Governor Spencer Cox in conversation with me on a stick with it episode of the Top of Mind podcast that uh, you can find on our feed right now if you want to go listen to that entire conversation. He told a number of stories uh, from his own experience as a politician disagreeing better and also failing, <laughs> falling short and having to make an apology and sort of commit to do better. So, James Hoops, um, you went into this listening experience in this particular conversation the way I think a lot of us do when we see a politician either writing an op-ed or there's an interview or even like reading their book, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, I don't agree with this person. So, you know, our walls are up. Um, and, and But something, something was different for you. Or what, what was that experience like when you sort of found yourself kind of agreeing with him? How did mm-hmm. that feel?
5: Yeah, I mean... I guess it was a little bit um, humbling to have th- have this experience of listening I- listening to him and finding myself agreeing with most of the things he was saying because um, I-, I realized I was being pretty deeply impragmatic when I was. Um, coming in with his headspace of, I can't agree with this guy because of this one thing that he did, right? And that doesn't mean that I have to agree with um, the congressional districts or any of the other initiatives that he's doing outside of this, but um, refusing to acknowledge that, hey, there is some middle ground and common ground here with this politician that sometimes I disagree with, um, I think prevents us from moving the needle in positive directions no matter what the the topic is or what the issue is.
0: So you find yourself seeing him in a slightly different light, but also thinking differently about how you engage with right. organizations, individuals totally. you disagree yeah. with.
5: Yeah. I think being able to hold all parts of people and organizations, right? Being able to say, yeah, Spencer Cox has some really great insights on immigration or disagreeing better um, and also saying maybe he doesn't have... Um, insights that I necessarily agree with on um, congressional districts or other issues like that. Um, But recognizing that allows me to be able to say, hey, maybe I can engage on disagree better with Spencer Cox and we can move that in a positive direction. If I just dismiss him completely, I'm not able to do any good or make any positive change, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. James, thank you. Thanks thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah. It's great having you on the team. Thanks, Julie. And thanks to you for tuning in today. We'd love to hear your thoughts on season four of Top of Mind. Email topofmind at byu.edu or track us down on social media. We are at Pod. At least one of the episodes this season was directly inspired by listener feedback on social media. So let us know what you'd like to hear more of or less of. What questions did we leave unanswered? What topics do you want us to tackle? An Apple podcast listener named Ellen Elsby said this in a recent review on the app. This podcast is informative and thought-provoking. These are conversations we should have. If you agree, we would love to have you leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. And if you missed any of our episodes from season four, now's a great time to catch up. We're taking a short break for the holidays. Look for season five starting in mid-January. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio production. Season four was produced by James Hoops, Samuel Benson, Elena Beck, Vanessa Goodman, Amber Mortensen, Abigail Tolley, Tyler Cap, and me. We had sound design and audio engineering by Brandon Lewis, Spencer Hewitt, Kelsey Ney, Trent Reimschusel, and Clark Jackman. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. Hey, Top of Mind listeners, Julie here. I just wanted to let you know about a special treat for you and your family. Starting December 1st, just in time for Advent season, our sister podcast, Constant Wonder, will be dropping a short daily episode with an inspiring Christmas theme. Might be a story from nature, art, or the Bible. Because remember in the story, the Magi were not Jewish. They were coming from the East from different traditions. And yet they're being drawn together in this moment of worship. It kind of gives you that hope that maybe there would be this ability for us to cross all the things that divide us and worship and wonder together. Each episode's only about 10 minutes long, making it easy to bring the Christmas spirit into your life throughout the holidays. So check out Constant Wonder starting December 1st on your favorite podcast platform, or the BYU Radio app.